Hi, this is Gary Meese with the case against. This will be episode 72. We really are winding down now through the my book, uh, Where the Monsters Go, which is the second volume in a two-volume set. The first volume is Blood on Black. Uh, it's covering the West Memphis Three case. There's a combined, revised, condensed version called The Case Against the West Memphis Three Killers. All three, all three books are available on uh, Amazon in print and in Kindle format. And uh, since uh, where the Monsters Go is a second volume. Uh, it's a two-volume set. We're pretty much wrapping up the case, though I, I will have I have a couple more episodes to go, and um, I'll have some supplementary material, and I feel sure at some point, sometime in the future, I will uh, chime in again from time to time about the West Memphis Three case. But uh, as it stands right now, uh, I, I feel we've, with 72 episodes, I do, which this will be the 72nd episode, I think roughly 72 hours, probably a little less than that, but quite a few hours. Uh, I think we've covered the West Memphis Three case fairly completely, probably more than most people are really interested in. As I say, I will get back into it from time to time. Um, I'm going to talk today. I'm going to, the chapter today that I'm going to uh, be drawing from in the, uh, in Where the Monsters Go is titled, People in West Memphis Will Tell Their Kids Stories. It will be like, sort of like, I'm the West Memphis Boogeyman. Now, this is a fairly famous quote from Damien Eccles. I mean, people who follow the case, it's instantly recognizable, and it shows up in the Paradise Lost uh, films. And uh, honestly, it's one of the moments. It, it's not evidence that, that he committed murder in, on its face, but, you know, it... It give it gives. <coughs> I'm going to argue it gives an insight into the mindset of this this child killer, and uh, how he perceives himself, how he wants to be perceived, how he still wants to be perceived on 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 a slightly more elevated scale. He no longer wants to be the West Memphis boogeyman so much as he wants to be uh, the premier ceremonial magician of his generation, whatever whatever the hell that's worth. Anyway, I want to get into it. Uh, the most damning element in the case against Damien Eccles was not his failed alibi or his failed lie detector test. Our eyewitness accounts placing him near the scene of the crime, and the crime being the murder of Christopher Byers, Michael Moore, and Stevie Branch 
on May 5th, 1993 in West Memphis, Arkansas. These were three eight-year-old boys we're talking about. Uh, the bare fact of Eccles' links to the occult had relatively little to do with his conviction. So say the jurors. Even Jesse Miskelly Jr.'s confessions explained less about why the crimes occurred than Eccles' assertion of himself as an unhappy outsider who nurtured dreams of obtaining power through ritual magic. Like many violent criminals, Eccles could not resist bragging about his murders, reveling in his new role as the terror of the town, and taunting police with his knowledge of the crime as part of his fantasy of absolute power. He boasted for the film cameras, for Bruce, Bruce Sinofsky and Joe Berlinger, his, his enablers, his uh, Hollywood enablers, uh, I kind of enjoy it because now, even after I die, people are going to remember me forever. They're going to talk about me for years. People in West Memphis will tell their kids stories. It will be like, sort of like I'm the West Memphis boogeyman. Little kids will be looking under their beds before they go to sleep. Damien might be under there. Uh, Damien's aunt, Patricia Liggett, who seemed to have had custody at least some of the time when Eccles was floating around between parents in 1992 and maybe on into 1993. Uh, Patricia Liggett believed he was guilty in, back in 1993, and she more recently told the Commercial Appeal he was playing a game. The game backfired. It was a stupid game. Some people were born bad. They're hardwired to develop a distorted and dangerous view of the world, including a preoccupation with sex and violence that often blends the two. Trouble is their destiny. Eccles seemingly was destined for trouble from the very start. Now, I early episodes covered his childhood and his very disturbing, disturbed behavior as a child. He's obviously very, very troubled. And uh, the fact that he was dangerous became more apparent later. But the seeds of it were there very early on. Now, other criminals are formed by life experiences, often learning the ABCs of violence at their parental knee. Jesse Miskelly Jr., for example, was schooled at an early age in the idea that violence was the best means to solve a problem. Even during Jesse's phone calls from prison, his father reinforced the lessons. You know, Jesse Sr.'s talking about, you know, uh, they're talking about slamming their fist against people versus slamming their fence against toilets. The, there's never the idea that maybe slamming your fist might not be the best idea. 
As a child, Jason Baldwin witnessed the routine violence of his drunken stepfather towards his erratic, mentally ill mother. Eventually beaten himself, Jason turned on his stepfather not long before the murders. But Eccles suffered a different sort of abuse, a deep psychological wounds, and many of them were self-inflicted. Eccles experiences a despised loner, unable to fit into normal society, is common to sociopathic killers. Also held in common is a fantasy life driven by power needs, topped off by driving sexual urges. Serial killers often describe a kind of alternative reality based on various drives, urges, and experiences filled with compelling fantasies. Ted Bundy, for instance, and Ted Bundy has recently been the subject of two projects by Joe Berlinger. No coincidence there. And in fact, one of those one of those one of those projects, uh, Bundy is treated most sympathetically, the fictional depiction. Uh, Ted Bundy described how the so-called entity grew within him, nurtured by an immersion in pornography. Some serial killers explicitly call upon Satan for help at some point in their careers. In the most egregious and well-known example, Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, was an explicit Satanist affiliated with the Church of Satan. Uh, Nick Wischreck and Zena... Uh, LeVay came down and went to uh, came down from San Francisco to lend support to Ramirez during his trial. Zena uh, Zena LeVay is Nicholas Schreck is was married to Zena and Zena was the daughter of Anton LeVay. Richard Ramirez attended some rituals, services, whatever you want to call them, at the Church of Satan in San Francisco. And he considered himself to be a Satanist, and he considered himself to be practicing these crimes in the name of Satan. So whatever the FBI says about, no, no Satanist, you know, all this talk about, oh, no Satanist, uh, uh, you know, I've ever committed a, a killing in the name of Satan and all that, it's just not true. That sort of explicit Satanism is an outlier, admittedly, but serial killers universally embrace the forbidden. It just simply comes with the territory. Most such killers are drawn into their fantasy worlds in an almost haphazard manner with their dangerous proclivities shaped initially by an unhappy collision with coincidence. And I'm talking about serial killers here. Was Eccles a serial killer? No. He didn't get the opportunity to be a serial killer, apparently. He, he, by the testimony, by the witnesses, uh, several witnesses stated that Eccles had explicitly said that he was out looking for new victims. So, you know, you got to kill on more than one occasion to be a serial killer.
did he have the capacity to do that? Did he have the will and the inclination to do that? Absolutely. Eccles' belief system, by comparison to the average serial killer who just sort of, arguably just sort of came upon his problem uh, by coincidence, a lot of bad luck, a lot of bad circumstances all came together in, in a way and created a sort of accidental monster, but a real monster. Eccles' belief system was remarkable in its consistency and efficiency. His practice of ritual magic was and still is richly conceived as an alternative reality totally at odds with the world about him. The weird boy from the trailer park created the satisfying and consistent delusion that he was powerful, even godlike. His various mental illnesses fed seamlessly into a system of sick belief that afforded endless opportunities to lord it over his former persecutors and ensure that his outsized ego could not be ignored. And I'm writing this in the past tense, but all that is just as true today. The six psyches of Jason Baldwin and Jesse Miskelly, by contrast, fed off the extravagant needs of Eccles, with Baldwin channeling his own violent impulses through Eccles' obsessions. Miskelly, who was much more casually involved in, in uh, the crimes, particularly the planning of the crimes, he was intrinsically involved in the commission of the crimes, became a willing dupe in a bullying attack that turned into a bizarre bloodletting ritual. In other words, for Miskelly, Miskelly describes the killings if just on the basis of his description. I think it's fair to say he describes a bullying incident that goes out of control. You've got some violent, drunken teens in the woods, some small boys come upon them and they commence beating up the boys and care and go on and on with it to the point that they uh, molest, torture, mutilate, and kill these boys. Uh, for Eccles, this was uh, I, I'm I'm going to argue that for Eccles, this was a different experience. And for Miskelly, there's this kind of strange barrier between his description of the killings. And then he goes on to describe his involvement in these satanic rituals uh, with uh, Damien and Jason some, and some other people in, in the trailer parks. Violent activities there. And it, it never quite makes the connection that these two are really tied in together. But when he describes killing dogs, for instance, it's obviously practice for killing larger game. And and Eccles certainly cons considered these boys as prey that he was entitled to prey upon, use as he wished dispose of as he wished. Uh, but Eccles' pattern for murder developed long before Damien, Jason, and Jesse entered Robin Hood Hills. 
And it didn't end, though the killing stopped. When Well, Eccles bragged about his plans for more killings, and Miskelly was being pressured into new murders. Then this was just prior to their arrest. Miskelly describes uh, Jason and, and uh, Damien trying to draw him into committing new murders. The West Memphis Three were arrested before any of that could happen, before anybody else could die at their hands. Like many others who would have become serial killers if only they had gotten the chance, they were thwarted in their desires. Nonetheless, they, and I'm really I should maybe perhaps limit this more to Damien Eccles, shared characteristics common to serial killers. A list of traits common to serial killers compiled by the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit corresponds closely with Eccles and, to a much lesser extent, Baldwin. Serial killers are typically white males in their 20s and 30s. Eccles was younger, but he is a white male. He was 18 at the time. Uh, they're usually rather smart with an IQ designated bright normal, Despite their intelligence, serial killers are underachievers, often do poorly in school or dropping out, and ending up unemployed with inconsistent employment or in unskilled employment. Now, Eccles has claimed he's a genius, but his IQ test uh, that was administered to him, I think, came out at 101, which is just absolutely, almost perfectly average. Frankly, he seems a little smarter than that. So let's give him that maybe he's bright and normal, edging on up there maybe into the teens. And uh, so he's not stupid. And uh, Baldwin probably is. I don't know what his IQ is. Uh, he, didn't, he didn't offer himself up to a lot of psychological tests, but... I suspect he's not too bright. He's smarter than Jesse Miskelly, whose IQ is really f fairly low. He's not retarded. Uh, they, they sometimes refer to as borderline retarded, 72. There's some question about whether he's... There's arguments back and forth. I tend to go along with the idea that he's, his IQ really probably is about 72. But that doesn't mean his IQ puts him at uh, the level of, say, a six-year-old boy. If you want to see what a six or make that an eight-year-old boy comes up with when he's being questioned by police, just look at the statements of Aaron Hutchison. People claim that uh, Jesse Miskelly's statements go all over the place. Well, they don't. They're actually, they vary quite a bit and extraneous details, but in the specifics of the killings, they're remarkably consistent over over one confession after another confession after another confession after another confession under a great deal over uh, almost a year's time and under very different circumstances, talking to very different people. Aaron Hutchison's stories are all over the place almost immediately. And I and I suspect Aaron Hutchison is quite a bit more intelligent than Jesse Miskelly Jr. 
they were all these, all three of these, I, I think it's safe to say that uh, Damien was an underachiever. He was dropped out of school. He's smart enough to have at least gotten a high school education. In fact, I think he's intelligent enough to, particularly in today's standards, to go on to college and perhaps even get a degree there. But he did very poorly in school. He dropped out. Miss Kelly had also dropped out. And he was essentially unemployed. Miss Kelly was, uh, had very inconsistent employment, and it was unskilled employment, as Deckles had no uh, skilled employment. And in fact, he was on Social Security disability at the time and seemed quite content to just live off that and maybe pick up a few little odd jobs here and there from time to time. Uh, it's overstated often how well Jason Baldwin was doing in school. His grades were had, he had very modest uh, success in school up to that year. You know, not not terrible, not great. You know, B's and C's. Uh, no, nobody's idea of a scholar, but uh, his his uh, academics had gone downhill quite a bit in 1993. There's a lot going on at home with his mother's mental illnesses, breakdowns, suicide attempts, drunken stepfather being driven out of the home by Jason with baseball bat, uh, money problems. Uh, Jason being saddled with new responsibilities to keep keep watch over his siblings while his mother was off at school. His mother inviting a chronic felon into the home as her new boyfriend. And then she's almost immediately having problems with him to the point that she kicks him out. Uh, essentially the same, they break up essentially the same day that Jason goes out in the woods and kills three little boys. A lot going on there. A lot going on in the Eccles household. In the space of a year, his mother gets divorced. Uh, Damien ends up in mental institutions three times, which should have put some stress on the family, including there was an episode out in Oregon. They all go out to Oregon. Uh, Damien threatens the family, uh, threatens to slide his, cut his mother's throat, eat his father with a spoon. They basically say, Damien, after he goes to St. Vincent's, uh, Damien, you can't come home. We have smaller children here, and we don't feel safe around you. You need to go back to Arkansas. And Damien goes back to Arkansas, lives with Jack Eccles some of the time, lives with Dominique and her mother some of the time. Who knows where else he was living so there was a lot of stress there, and I, and you know, he probably wasn't well suited for dealing with all that. Uh, all the they were, uh, he was not employed really. Essentially, uh, Miss Kelly was, again, he was doing some part-time roofing, and Jason was going to school. Okay, that's two two things here. Typically white males, usually rather smart, with IQ designated bright and normal, often come from broken homes with an absent or inadequate father and domineering mother. That is absent father for absent father for Damien, inadequate father for Damien, 
inadequate stepfather for Damien. It's actually apparently a sex-perverted stepfather for Damien. A weirdly sort of dominating mother for Damien. A weirdly sort of domineering mother for uh, Jason. Mentally ill, but she did try to run run the household. Maybe we should give her some credit for that, but she did dominate those boys. Uh, as we've already mentioned, uh, absent absent biological father for Jason, and uh, an adequate would be a nice way to put uh, the role of Terry Grinnell, his, Jason's stepfather in that household. Jason, uh, Jesse Miskelly's father was chronically uh, intoxicated, had been for a long time, had gone through all sorts of relationships, and he was living with, uh, had a living girlfriend at the time, Lee Rush, who <coughs> was also chronically intoxicated much of the time. Okay, these serial killers often have a history of psychiatric problems, criminality, and substance abuse in their families. Uh, yeah, we just went through all that, and I'll throw in that uh, Damien's mother was generally uh, deemed to have some sort of psychological problems that made her really unable to function adequately as a mother. You know, often I, it's she seems she does, she seems sort of oriented. You know, the times I've seen interviews, she seems oriented to reality. So I'm, I do get the impression that maybe she has some sort of extreme agoraphobia or something like that. But certainly, she was deemed to have psychological problems. We're just not really sure what they are. Uh, serial killers. Often were abused in childhood, physically or psych psychologically, and I think that's, as, as we've already mentioned, that was true for all these boys. Often have well-meaning but domineering mothers. Check. Uh, the, the exception there would be uh, Jesse, who I'm not really, he's, he has his, he's not really, fitting in with this profile anyway. I'm not trying to make him fit in. He did have a stepmother who was loving and consistent toward him and apparently did try to help him a lot. But, you know, he did have problems with his father. I, in, in some ways, as weird as it sounds, I think Jesse had a better... I wouldn't want to be, grow up in that there as my, that being my childhood, but... The, the family there was more consistent and more loving and more stable than the other two, weirdly enough, as inconsistent and unstable as it was. And Jesse's biological mother was off somewhere. So uh, I had her name somewhere, and I, she died not that long ago, and Jesse sent her a little card. Uh, Serial killers usually have problems with male authority figures and exhibit strong hostility towards women. I would say that is true for Damien. Definitely. And as far as the problems with male authority figures, it's also true for Jason.
exhibit psychological problems at an early age with many spending time in institutions. Check mark for Damien. Uh, Jesse also had psychological problems at an early age. Hate humanity, including themselves, with some considering suicide as early as their teenage years. Damien had, um, he describes hating humanity. He describes himself as being a wolf among the sheep. He uh, made several, I mean, his first trip to a, a mental institution was over uh, a claiming he was going to commit suicide. He, his second trip to a mental institution uh, did have a homicidal threats in, in Oregon, but there was also a threat of suicide there. Uh, he made a suicide attempt after he was arrested by taking his, uh, an overdose of his uh, antidepressant medication. So whether he was serious about actually committing suicide or not, he certainly did more than consider it. He actually uh, attempted it at least on one occasion and certainly threatened it otherwise. Uh, serial killers sometimes abduct victims in broad daylight or with clear risk of discovery. Um, well, that's what happened in the West Memphis Three killings. And we also know that Damien had a history of stalking children and performing what appeared to be sex acts while he was observing these children. Uh, other than that, there, you know, there's no, I, there's no, <coughs> other than those two big exceptions, there's no, uh, there's no clear history that they were involved in, that Damien or any of the rest of them were involved in uh, abduction of victims in broad daylight. The two, bi two big exceptions are pretty big exceptions. And often become, serial killers often become fascinated with success, sex at an unnaturally early age with this interest increasingly turning to obsessive fantasies, often with elements of fetishism and voyeurism. Budding sex serial killers are often peeping toms. Checklist check for Damien, who was known to also as to be a stalker and uh, child molesters. Check for Damien and Jason with the three boys in the woods and chronic masturbators. Eh, and we don't know about that, uh, but there's a lot of things we don't know about these three. There's a lot of stuff that's secret, despite all the, the copious mental health records on Damien Eccles, we don't know everything that's there. That's there. We do know what we do see there is a very disturbing record of a very mentally, very sick, mentally ill and dangerous young man. The ritualistic of the murders of the three little boys certainly had a strong sexual component. Uh, Miskelly described how Baldwin and Eccles gleefully tortured, bound, molested, mutilated, and killed their victims. As I'd said earlier, 1992, Eccles was repeatedly accused of stalking younger children. <coughs> In many respects, he was an adult. He was 18 years old. He had a pregnant 16-year-old girlfriend. But while this was going on, he was also attempting to establish a 
I put quotes around this in the book, romantic relationship with a 12-year-old girl, Jennifer Bearden. Highly inappropriate. A grandiose exhibitionist, he has written about his chronic masturbation as a young teen. Okay, I forgot. (laughs) We do have a record of that, according to his own statements. Um, Eccles was arrested while partially nude in the company of his teenage girlfriend, Deanna Holcomb, back in May of 1992. And um, when he went off to... uh, counseling and these mental institutions counselors were taken aback by a sexual candor according according to their own statements though this was relatively poorly documented in recent years he's been involved in the and i said this is not true anymore but when i wrote this uh, eccles had been involved in the promotion and sale of art that revealed a obsession with violence blood and magic art that objectified trauma, despairing victimhood, often using his own bodily fluids as a medium. And I suggest there was a strong sexual component to that. Apparently, Eccles didn't make as much money as he wanted to off his art, so he went on to something else. Uh, who knows why he does what he does. He, he, you know, he, he, does get, he is getting some things done, but he's also dropping in and out of projects on a fairly frequent basis. Uh, and the books are being basically being put together for him by skilled editors. According to his own statements, he goes in, babbles for a couple of days, and they put it together. And the next thing you know, here's a, <coughs> here's a book by noted author Damien Eccles. I think Eccles is capable of writing a book or two or three but uh, doesn't seem to have the wherewithal to uh, the, the emotional strength actually to do that by nature psychopaths like empathy and are antisocial and emotionally empty they experience a little conflict in turning their victims into mere object objects now, as, as Eccles a so- psychopath, well, he described himself in a Social Security disability application as a sociopath, a term that has no clear distinction from a psychopath. And I've been told by someone, someone who would know in West Memphis that he described himself when he went in to make that application uh, he described himself verbally as a psychopath. For many psychopathic killers, the totality of the experience, the rape, the murder, the rituals committed in the commission of the crimes, provides a primary sexual release. For a stalker, the growing tension throughout the hunt provides the initial relief from the pressures he's feeling elsewhere in his life. The continued revisiting of the crime through his imagination, revisiting the scene, even talking with police, or seeming to participate in the investigation prolong the intense sensations of grandiose power gained from the criminal act. Now, Eccles didn't even make any sort of pretense that he was helping the police, though he had been involved for several years with feeding a lot of information to Jerry Driver, juvenile officer who was very 
much concerned about occult crime in by teenagers in particular in Crittenden County, which is where West Memphis is located in Arkansas. Um, he had been feeding this information, been feeding uh, drivers' concerns. He was the primary source for most of the information that driver was getting. So if there was a satanic panic in Crittenden County, one of the prime authors was Damien Eccles. Uh, there was a, a, objectively evidence that teenagers were involved in uh, various occult things. As they certainly there were there were campfires, there were sites where animals animals looked like they'd been sacrificed. There certainly was graffiti, which is doesn't really prove much of anything except somebody has an interest in putting up graffiti graffiti projecting some sort of image to the world. And Eccles has admitted putting up graffiti, though he's downplayed it, what it actually his role in actually putting up graffiti around uh, West Memphis. Uh, Eccles seemed to relish teasing the police with his special knowledge about the crime, with his special knowledge about ritual magic, and with all, his description of all the thoughts and feelings of the sort of killer that would have killed, that killed the three little boys. Though he complained that the police had singled him out, he initially egged on their investigation and seemed to take a perverse pleasure in the attention. This is the game that Patricia, Patricia Liggett was talk, speaking of. According to Miss Skelly, Eccles staked out the kill site and his intended victims. The crime in its aftermath had another effect sought by Eccles, fame. Let me go back to the staking out the kill site as intended victims. Eccles hunted these boys. He picked out his prey. He knew these boys were showing up in the woods. He and Jason invited Muskelly along to beat up some boys in West Memphis. Earlier in the week, they made an appointment for Wednesday. There was a pattern here that Eccles had... Uh, learned of, he had determined he was going through this area of going across that, that little bridge, that pipeline bridge over 10 mile bayou. He was going essentially through Robin Hood Hills two or three times a week, according to his own statements. Of course, he has other statements where he says he didn't rarely even went into West Memphis. He lived in West Memphis, and the pedestrian, the only f easy pedestrian, the shortest, simplest, best pedestrian route between where he lived and where Dominique and Jason lived, where he went every day, was through that neighborhood where the boys lived, and across that pipeline and into the woods. So he was familiar with that, and he would have been going through there about the time Jason's going to be getting out of school, which means he would have been going through there when these boys were just getting home from school. These other boys would just been getting out of elementary school and perhaps going off to play in the woods. 
we know they went into play in the woods. The crime in its aftermath had another effect sought by Eccles, which is fame. The self-described West Memphis boogeyman caught everyone's attention. And at the time I wrote this, the, the former terror of Salem, Massachusetts was he was at that time he was flaunting his cliched he's still doing this cliched transgressive edginess but at that at that time he was using hermetic reiki and his outsider art with these morbid themes and in 2016 uh, there was a young tattoo artist who joined Eccles and Lori Davis in a seemingly polyamorous relationship, which was lovingly celebrated on Facebook. And I'll remind you that uh, Lori Davis is Eccles' death row bride, and they penned uh, a book about their great love for each other called Yours for Eternity, based on their letters from back and forth between each other in prison. An outsider or loner status during childhood is common to psychopathic killers. Every tedious account of Eccles' pathetic childhood has been a self-pitting rehash of loneliness, angst, and alienation. Like many future psychopaths, he escaped into a rich fantasy world in which he dreamed of being the world's most powerful so-and-so, and in this case, the world's most powerful magician. Now, the early fantasies of serial killers often lead to two disturbing behaviors, fire-starting and animal cruelty, both common themes in describing the teenage Eccles, who stomped a dog to death, who routinely tortured frogs, and was the proud owner of a collection of animal skulls, who bragged about setting a garage and his own leg on fire. who created all sorts of mayhem at school before he was finally invited not to come back. Societal influences also play a large role in the formation of demented personalities. Baldwin, Eccles, and Miskelly all lived in a small, violent community on the fringes of society. Reading through the records of the case, the list of child molesters, the criminally insane, career criminals, the mentally deficient, the mentally ill, drunks, drug addicts, and pathological liars seems to never end. Many of those, of course, were the local, usual local losers who routinely will be checked out in any large-scale police investigation. And in other words, it's not uh, a coincidence that the police are going around and checking all these suspicious characters and that's why they were checking out Damien Eccles. He was a suspicious character who managed to make himself a more suspicious character in short order. And that's enough for today. Uh, I'm wishing all of you well. Thanks for bearing with me through all these episodes, uh, and for bearing with me through the, you know, I'm, I do the, I do these podcasts 
Uh, you know, I try to do them on a somewhat regular basis, but I certainly don't have a schedule as such. And I was just thinking before I sat down that doing a podcast is not quite, you know, I'm not quite as prone to procrastination as I am with actually writing, which anybody who's done a great deal of writing, almost anyone, there are exceptions, probably knows whereof I speak, where you just getting yourself to sit down and actually do the writing is seemingly the hardest thing to do in the world. And everything in the world comes up to prevent you from doing that. Uh, podcasting isn't quite that bad, but, it, I, you know, all I have to do is get a little tickle in my throat. And I have, you know, I have a sensitive throat for some reason. So I cough a little bit. And the next thing you know, oh, well, I'll, I'll just do it tomorrow. Maybe my throat will be better. And, you know, or I've got a lot going on, or I'm tired, or it's too hot, or there's a hurricane. <laughs> I've had, we've had a bunch of hurricanes pass pretty close to me over the last couple of months. Oh, there's a hurricane going on. I don't want to do that because hurricane's coming tomorrow. Well, I don't know why I would, that would have been relevant, but guess what? It played into, played into my thinking somehow. So thank you for bearing with me. Uh, uh, through these various delays and uh, jump starts and so forth. And uh, we're going to be wrapping this up before too long, and I promise you I will, that I, my intention is to move on to some uh, other cases. I'm not going to be dealing with any of them to, with, in the kind of depth that I'm dealing with here. Uh, I'm not sure I would live long enough to actually, at this point, I'm not sure I would live long enough to do another case uh, with the kind of depth I've, I've done here. But uh, I hope to do more than just some sort of superficial, quick, easy look uh, at the various, particularly the wrongful conviction cases and the, docu the really wrong-headed documentaries that keep coming out. And some documentaries are fine. But uh, there, there are enough of them that give a totally misleading idea about the actual the, the case that I think it is worth a look, and I don't think any of that is a coincidence. Anyway, that's enough for me today. Thank you.